Well, it all came crashing to a screaming halt last week as the Hawks showed us how to play finals footy and we showed the competition how not to play them. Join the team for our wash-up cast where we talk about the game, the season and the post-season dramas as we head into trade week for another year. One thing's for certain, the footy club should be proud of their achievements this year and congrats to all involved for making the best of a horror year. This is Crowcast. Okay, welcome guys to the final season-related Crowcast for the year. Obviously a disappointing end to the season and we're going to talk about the wash-up. Um, do we have to? Uh, yeah, unfortunately we do. That's what we do. And obviously we'll talk about what's happened post-season so far and what may happen and lots of interesting bits of news. So welcome, guys. G'day, Danos. How you doing, mate? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. Hopefully the recording works tonight. How you going, Waffle? Good, thanks. Yourself? Yep. Not too bad. Nikki, how you doing? I'm here. Excellent news. Good thing you're here because it's time for Nikki's news. Well, the All-Australian team is being named tonight and basically I think the fan-made All-Australia, the one that was voted on by the fans, um, should have got up because the one that appears to be picked by selectors has some very interesting ones that are making a lot of people go, what the hell? But Eddie's finally got his first All-Australian jumper, um, very well-deserved and Danger is also in as well. But unfortunately, Rory Laird missed out um, because Heath Shaw had his spot. I also think the fact that they had the two Bulldogs um, players who also play that similar role to Laird, which is the the runoff and not defend that much, um, probably sort of kept him out. And weirdly enough, uh, Revolt from Richmond was named at centre-half forward instead of Walker. Or about 100 other forwards. Yeah. Um, so Revolt was probably about fifth in line, fifth or sixth in line. And, yeah, that one's that one's a very, very odd selection. I'm sure they draw names out of the, hat, the selection panel. They don't pick them on what they've done all season. I think they look at previous seasons as well. There's there's some certain bias on that panel. It has been for a, um, a number of years. I do like the fact that they do question um, the panel now because one of the years when uh, Jared Healy did himself no favours um, when it was asked regarding uh, Nick Nat, uh, head of source, and his answer was not, very he didn't do himself justice. Um, um, everything he said didn't quite work. So it's kind of good that they question them, but yeah, I think there's quite a few um, few things might be said um, tomorrow regarding that team. But the fact we got we've still got two players in that that's good and very well done um, for Eddie. Silly season is still upon us with trades and everything else. I mean. The, the trade period is not going to start for another four weeks, but everybody's kind of starting to to jockey into position and that um, they seem to be knowing where players are going or what's likely to happen. 
There is still that mysterious $750,000 that keeps getting reported for players by the media. Um, this time it's Hamish Hartlett appears to be on the way out of port because they need to make room in their salary cap for Dixon. Um, so they actually have to offload a decent player, which uh, is not looking good for Port in terms of their list management. Although someone tweeted today that um, that's not possibly not the case and that they do have room to sign all the players who are out of contract. So who tweeted that? It might have been Brett Anderson. Because it's been Keith Thomas, I think, a couple of weeks ago actually did reveal that they asked to roll to have the higher. They were paying, I think, 105% of the cap this year. So that's the CEO saying, yep, we're actually paying over. Well, it depends how contracts are structured as to whether that same figure happens again next year. Yeah, exactly. They could have yeah. some front-loading going on this year. Um you, you don't know. I mean, it's too difficult to predict what, you know, the salary cap structure is and they could reconfigure their salary cap even for next year anyway to fit, fit Dixon in. For me, the interesting thing is they've got quite a number of their younger stars that are going to have a lot of interest from other clubs coming out of contract next year. So that's what makes me think that there might be some interesting things going on down at Port. The big news from Mark Stevens, uh, David Hale is retiring. <laughs> yes, and, and David Hale apparently didn't tell his wife. Um, there was a very lovely um, Mark Stevens from Channel 7 announced David Hale's going to retire the end of this season and it was immediately replied to by David Hale's wife to say, it's very nice he hasn't told those people close to him like his wife. Um, so I think Stevens might be talking out of his Again. Oh well, you, well, that's what he does, isn't it? That's it. Yeah. You know my views on the journos. Yes. Mark, Mark Stevens is the biggest knob on TV as far as the journos go, and that includes Hutchie. Yes. Ooh. I'm, but, yeah. I'm standing by that call. Yeah. He's an absolute tosser. He is. I agree with you wholeheartedly, there, Phoenix. I think I've said a few things on the board about what I think about Hutchie and. Mr. Stevens. At least Hutchie's got his finger on the pulse. He might make some outlandish statements and have a skewed view, but Mark Stevens just parrot stuff and the ridiculous comments he was making about Dangerfield should, you know, being allowed to just, you know, waltz over to Geelong without us standing in his way. I mean, the guy just needs a big kick up the date, really. You can't you can't be an objective journalist and say that sort of stuff. He does, Phoenix. Um, and Hutchie, I think he's got his finger on more than the pulse. I think he's got it on the uh, jar of donuts. Now, we don't talk about people's physical appearances. Yeah, mine's a beer gut, I'm proud to say. Well paid for. <laughs> I don't mind a donut. Neither do I. As long as it's not Krispy Kreme. I don't understand people's fascination with them. I think they're horrible. Oh, my God. Krispy Kreme are amazing. Oh, crap. Uh, Give me a villain. Not, it's out any it's day. not far away from home, and I've only had it about three times since it's been open. I live in the eastern states where it's abundant. Yes, I didn't live far from one either. 
We have little snack bars. Yeah, but you guys are um, weird. Petrol stations over here. We had people lining up when Krispy Kreme opened here, Dennis. Oh, I mean, it was just ridiculous. I know. People were getting I bashed it. for their Krispy Kreme. That's pretty sad. That is pretty sad. Anyway, Nikki, keep going. Um, so there's rumours that Worsfold is off to coach at Essendon. Um, no, it's confirmed. Uh, has been confirmed that he is. Is he well, head not coach? That he's, not that he's coaching, but he's like in. He's formally part of the process now. Oh, it's formally part it's of also, process. it's also uh, what I heard on the radio this afternoon was that it's been formalised that he's leaving Adelaide. Yes, yeah. that was on yeah, the was Crows announced. website. There you go. Probably a fair move by I, – I think that's actually why Essendon came down and talked to him. I think that decision was made a few weeks ago, that he wasn't going to be part of our, our future coaching panel. The sky is falling. Oh, the chicken little gifts. Um, yeah, it, it is kind of interesting that um, I think one of the discussions that might come out from this – yeah, the AFL needs to look at. They've pushed the trade week back. I think they may need to bring it actually closer to the end of season because clubs are, are pretty much lining up. Clubs and managers and players are lining up where they're going to go next year and it's all going to be kind of sorted, I think, even before trade week starts, which is just a nuts of a thing to be going on. No, just, I don't mind it. Yeah, no, just can fit more I, tennis in too, Dan Oz. More tennis in? Yes. Um, I, I don't actually mind it. I wouldn't mind if trade period, everything had to be made official on a day, have everything happen on a day, give them as much time as they want to organise it beforehand and then just get it all signed and over the line. Agreed. Oh, that's going to cause problems if anything involves Essendon. Yeah, but the whole because the, it's a two week period now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, that's look what happened last year. Nothing happened for the first week and a half. No, first eight days. It's because they don't have to as well. The AFL, there was talk that the what the reason why the AFL pushed this back was it so that they could keep themselves at the forefront of the media, um, whilst the A League had started up and cricket had started up. Um, the AFL are keen for almost a twenty uh, twelve month news cycle on on the AFL, so that's partly why. They did all this. I mean, you you look at um, final list lodgements and everything else. It's not until November, and that's a lot of teams uh, would be back in training by then. Hugh Greenwood's already training. Yes, he is all by himself, running around, running laps around the oval. Could he be the uh, next big thing for next year? I doubt it. It'll be interesting to watch him in the SNFL. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that as to, as to where we play him. Um, but the other thing is the listings have kind of happened. I don't think there's been any real shocks except for the fact that some players actually haven't been delisted as yet. Butcher. Um, what was that? Butcher. Oh, yeah. Sorry. 
as as I'm trying to remember who it was who said it on the board, but the comment that has there ever been a better surname for a player relating to their football ability? Uh, I've laughed a lot at that. Certainly the kicking ability. Oh, well and truly. Could he be come close to being the worst player to get an AFL contract? Never um, mind. No. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's um there'd be a a few more out there and such, but mm. name them. Well, see, he can actually mark and do some other things, and seems to have quite a good football brain. He just can't kick. It's kind of integral to the game, though, kicking. Aaron Keating. That's hard. But he's got, but he's got a premiership medal. He was a specialist grand finalist. He was. He was a specialist. Tap Ruckman. What is it? Three, three, three AFL games and a Premiership medal. Yep. That'll do. Isn't that why what they all play for? That's it. <laughs> so we're gonna are we gonna talk about Dangerfield now, or we'll leave that until we tidy up the Hawthorne disaster. No, oh, because I'll have a bit of a go at him when we um talk about the Hawthorne game. Well. Let's talk about the Hawthorne game and then we can talk about the postseason coaching danger field crap. Sounds fair enough. Alright, Hawthorne game. We sucked. Uh, first two or three minutes sitting there, we all looked at each other and I think it was my father who actually said, I think this is going to be a long night. I watched the TV in the first quarter and I'm like, not this shit again, excuse the language. I was getting drunk at the pub. I turned it on on my phone, saw the scores, turned it off and proceeded to get more drunk. I think you probably had the best night then, Daniel. Yeah, probably. It was interesting that, and it's a shame that last week's podcast didn't go to air because our fears were realised. We yeah. we surmised two different game plans: one that might might have been successful, and one that definitely wasn't going to be successful. And we went with option two. And you were spot right on the money there, Phoenix, with what you said. Well, with regards to Bruce, with regards to the game plan, that wouldn't work. We actually did that manning up, you know, the pressuring the ball carrier. The only problem was that only certain ones of our players really followed through with that. Um, There was a very good sledge that occurred during the game from the person who was sitting next to me, who does listen to this podcast, as Sloan ran to the bench, which was near where I was sitting, and the comment came out of, oh, you're actually on the field, Sloan, because he was completely unsighted. For almost the whole of the game. I think I yield quite a few expletives with that missed tackle from McKay in the first quarter on Hodge, I think. Saying something to the effect of my four-year-old can tackle harder than that and I felt more pain and an attempted tackle from him. So I'll actually start off and say from being at the game, even though we got smashed, our defence actually mostly played well. All those guys actually tried their guts out. Um, Hardigan actually played very well. He was brilliant, um, I thought. Yeah, he was. And that that deliberate against him was just, oh. A joke. Oh, that, that was yeah. just a square up for the other one. Yeah, 
completely. But the other one was actually no, deliberate. No, but no, not. no, 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 no. Because was, he was a bit further away. That was a terrible decision, the it first was. one against that Hawthorne guy. He was under pressure and it came off the side of his boot. Virtual. Oh, yeah. Um, Jacobs was very good. Thompson, I thought, actually had a very good game. He he was a warrior. I mean, oh, I don't care what anyone what? says about his ability to chase and, and all those points of valid. He actually was doing that. But in terms of his effort and his his um his desire to get us up, he, he contested like an absolute warrior. He, he couldn't have got any more out of himself, Scott Thompson. And he was dishing it out back to Hawthorne players, which was a joy to watch. Um, I didn't actually watch the replay, but apparently you could hear one of when he accidentally, possibly maybe on purpose, stepped on one of them <laughs> as he was getting up and complaining to the umpire, going, what did I give him the freeway for? As only Thompson can do with this very sweet and innocent look on his face that nobody believes. Um, but, yeah, he was, if they were going to niggle us, he was going to niggle back and he knows exactly how to do it. Dangerfield, apparently his game looked decent on TV. He was back to those awful quick kicks and poor kicking that we actually haven't seen a lot of this year. Um, And his defensive efforts were, I'm going to chase once it's too late for me to actually affect the contest. Um, which had me kind of angry at him. To me, it looked like um, from selection right through to the game, we looked like a team that didn't believe we could win. I thought our selections were conservative. Um, our game plan was very reactive. That's what I was and, and our players just, I don't think they actually believed to be honest. They looked like they gave up after that last quarter, like, that we're done. I think they very much were wary of Hawthorne bouncing back after a poor performance. Um, And when Hawthorne got that bit of a run early in the game after Brody's turnover, um, I think that reinforced their fears. And for the rest of the game, we just chased. And whenever you chase, you look second rate. Yeah. And we look second rate. We didn't have any structure. We we were reactive. Um, you know, it, it was just a rabble. It really was a rabble. Scott Camparelli, I think, uh, didn't really have any options. Um, we were very predictable. Hawthorne knew what we were going to do. And they counted us quite easily. And I also have to say that Jenkins actually had a good game as well, in spite of not the ball not getting down there. He made the most of it um, whenever it did. Lynch did actually try, and he was um, buggered, but the delivery, and it was our midfield that very much let us down. It's the midfield that didn't put the pressure on that they should have in order to stop that clean ball heading forward for the Hawks. And it was our midfield that didn't do enough in terms of once we actually did manage to get the ball um, to actually move it on fast. Um, there was that one bit of play where we did and it looked really good down the ground. But, we just, yeah, we just didn't do it enough. Too much left up to too few. 
Well, yeah. we only had 20 on there. I mean, McKay shouldn't have even been in the squad. Oh, don't get me started on him. I just don't understand. I, I don't understand. I would have rather have seen five other players included than than McKay. I, I, it just blows my mind. It really does. The guy's been in the system for how many years and he still looks like a twig and he doesn't give us anything. There's no run and carry. He's apparently in there for run and carry. doesn't give us run and carry. Um, he doesn't stick a tackle. None of his disposals are effective. Uh, what what does he bring? It just seems like he doesn't care when he's out there. To me, it's like, oh, well, I stuff that up next time. I think he plays with heart. No, he but does. But I just don't think ground. he's up to it. And at that game, he he was one of those who was actually running hard back and forth. Him and Charlie Cameron um, were doing a lot of running up and down the ground, but unfortunately they were chasing tails um, a lot of the time. Henderson was back to his Henderson best. Well, he was the other one I was going to mention. Um, again, I don't know what he brings. I know that he's got a nice kick, and when he's playing by himself – he can look, you know, sparkly and efficient, <laughs> but hasn't got a defensive bone in his body, avoided contests like the plague, <sighs> and really, really in a final, you just can't have players like that playing for you. And there were so many times um, he was close enough to actually spoil, but he slowed down so that he could just go stand on the marks and put his hands up. I saw him chase and avoid... A, t- uh, a shepherd, and rather than continue the chase, he just tailed off. It, it was it, like stuff that you just wouldn't want to see in an amateur league game, and I, it, there's no place for that. You get dragged uh, for that in an amateur league game if you tail off. We, we've got other players in our squad that can deliver just as well and offer us far more in terms of effort. And I, uh, Henderson doesn't look engaged. He, he, I, I've never been a fan, and he didn't do anything to to change that. Yeah, it wasn't a fun game to sit there, but I sat there till the very end. So you know, I suppose there's an argument to say that we um, we played our final against the Bulldogs, and actually, you know, a lot of the rhetoric even after the game was, you know, to make the finals and win a final was an achievement. And I think that was kind of the attitude that the players took into the game. I think it was probably a bridge too far uh, and possibly a bit of mental exhaustion had set in by that, by that stage. And I wouldn't mind betting that there was a bit of a letdown afterwards as the season comes to an end and sort of everything comes to a head, you know, the, the realization that, that uh, you know the events of the year have have come to come to pass, and that's it. So who knows? It's interesting. Somebody pointed out that when since July, when we've had that really emotional win, um, so the showdown win was followed by that Sydney loss, yeah, and then the West Coast win was followed by the Geelong loss. So we've had this bit of up and down. So how much we can actually take that being 
a young group what had actually happened in July. It's um, it's a bit hard to tell, and I, I think that's what's going to be really hard looking back on this season is to see where things fit is because of what happened, basically. Well, you can look at um, the Hawthorne game earlier in the year, and I don't think Hawthorne played much differently that game. Um, but chalk, chalk and cheese in terms of our effort against them. And you would have thought if we played against them the way we played against them earlier in the year, it would have been a much closer event. So, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for they'd done their dash basically. Yeah. So tell me about um, the reactions of the players after the game. I didn't see that and I haven't had the heart to look at it. Um, I, we kind of looked at each other, it's time to go. Yep. We kind of walked off. <laughs> Certainly on the so, telly, they look, they look pretty spent. A lot was made of Dangerfield and blah, blah, blah. He just looked like a bloke who, who'd done his best and was disappointed to lose just like the rest of them. You know, I think people are looking for things that aren't there really. They, they look buggered at the end of the first quarter. Absolutely buggered. They didn't look like the Bulldogs looked like the previous week and that kind of lends weight to what I was saying earlier about them not really believing they were ever going to be a chance. They were kind of resigned, I think. Um, and I think, you know, I think secretly a lot of them would have probably been thinking at the end of that game, thank God that season's over. Yeah, I did find it very interesting, the, the that statement from Camparelli that he actually hasn't had time to grieve. Yeah, exactly. And so considering and, that, he's done a hell of a job. Well, and the context of that statement was interesting as well because he wasn't actually asked the, the question that he was asked didn't actually relate to Phil Walsh or anything like that, but it was a response to how was he feeling, basically. And the fact that he brought that up without any sort of um, prodding uh, tells me that it was pretty much front of mind and that he was a bit emotionally exhausted as well. And understandably so. He's done a fantastic job. He has done. And um, I know I tweeted at the club and if I say that after the game, supremely disappointed but also so incredibly proud of what the club has managed to do this season. Yeah, everyone, like, understandably, you'd think your coach has died tragically. Uh, the players aren't going to be able to function. I, I, in my mind, I'm thinking they're not even going to get close to the finals this year, and understandably so. So I'm amazed that we've made it that far and so proud of everyone, the players, coaches, everyone involved, supporters with the club that we've got as far as we've got. So at the start of the year, what did each of you, in order for us to improve, what would you have set the standard to be? Would it be make finals and win one? I'd be proud just to be top eight and like win win one eliminate like win the first week of finals and then expect to drop out. I would have. Uh, I think that um, as the season goes on, you have to readjust. Um, what your expectations are. But I feel like um, 
when we went into the season, we were expecting better than what we had seen previously. We were expecting um, improvement in little things like our toughness around the ball, our ability to tackle, um, lowering our eyes when looking for a forward, trying to hit people on the chest rather than vomit on Eddie's head. Pretty much all of those things we ticked. We did better than we had done previously, and it looked like the things that were missing in 2014, we were we were able to uh, find something to so that they weren't missing in 2015. I, I, um, think, I think that's a really good summary. Yeah. Because I know when everybody on the board, they start putting their predictions and, and one of the, I think the main consensus was, was to make the top eight, get in the finals, win at least one would be an improvement on previous seasons. For me, it was like you, Danos, was was seeing a, a few more different things while she was very much an unknown as to what he was going to bring to the club and how things were going to change and our, and our setups were going to change. But having a forward line actually starting to really function because we knew we could get the ball and we could bring it forward, but it was always that one set plan. We weren't utilising our forwards as best we could, I thought, and I really wanted to see that take a step up and and I think David Teague has has done a good job with that. Absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I think one of the things which didn't, improved so much on last year with our defense and what we did achieve though was we had uh talia brown Laird, hardigan and we brought in lever to the mix and those five guys were down there for most of the season together they hardly ever missed any games and it's them getting to know each other and learn how each other plays and become instinctive in how they react to each other is going to hold us in really good stead as we move forward. I think Milburn's a very good coach in terms of defensively one-on-one and being able to get the the best out of them and, and teaching these young defenders how to go forward because we've seen that improvement with those guys where he falls down and, and what was shown very much for the past couple of weeks is he doesn't know how to organize a kick-out strategy. Jesus Christ, stab me in the eye, for <laughs> God's sake. Hey, we actually managed to do a couple of different ones against Hawthorne. Didn't work, but at least they tried it. Um, and I think the, the talk is that he's not going to be at the club next year. So I think whilst he's done some really excellent work in terms of the one-on-one defending, I think it's kind of showing up that he has a lack of vision or the ability to change um, our kick-out strategies because we've we've got some weapons in this team. They just weren't being used well. At, at what point as a head coach do you turn around and look at your defensive coach and go, could you come up with something a little bit more interesting than long and to the right? Long to Jacobs. Yes, I, it's pretty predictable. Sorry, Daniels. No, you go. No, I'm, I'm thinking watching Brody take it and kicking it to the same spot. Well, I think teams have figured this out after 2013. 
I think um, I've completely lost what I was going to say. <laughs> you turned into waffle. That's like our kicking strategy. <laughs> just just go along to the right. Mil- Milburn had a plan, but he forgot. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Um, I, I've got a feeling that um, Walsh was in the process of trying to fix that up halfway through the year. Um, we obviously know what happened with that. Yeah. And it seemed like the progress that we were making in the back half was stagnating or did stagnate after that. Yep. So I, I wonder whether he just lost his, you know, backup voice telling him, yeah, that's good. No, that's not good. Let's try this. I think Nikki's um, view is is valid. I think Milburn was great at teaching individuals how to defend because he was an excellent defender himself. Um, but in terms of organisation and structure, I, I think he was probably lacking a little bit. Um, I'd like to see Brendan Laid get get jagged for our defensive coach. That I think that'd be a good addition. But the other thing too. Um, that I think I liked about our season this year. One of my knocks on the Crows has always been that when, we, when we're playing well, we look brilliant, but we're very fragile. And as soon as things don't go our way, we fall in a heap very quickly, or we have done in the past. Whereas this year, I felt like we were starting to look a little bit more solid. We could stop momentum a little bit. Um, we could um, hold the ball up a little bit. Uh, we had a few different looks in our forward line. Um, and our frontal pressure improved again, which is always a sign that we're playing well. And whilst probably the second half of the year, things fell away, I think, because we were just, I think we were playing on emotion a lot of the time. There are a couple of games, the Richmond game in particular, and obviously the first quarter against West Coast. But the Richmond game I really liked because that one to me was was indicative, I think, of how we how we are going to look if things continue. Um, so I like the fact that we didn't look as fragile for, for, my, for a, a good part of the year compared to previous years. I, I feel like we were able to, when we had the right frame of mind, we could keep ourselves in the game. But in terms of not being fragile, I, I don't know whether I'd completely agree with that because the games where we lost it, we absolutely lost it. There was, it was almost like a different team was playing. Um, the Bulldogs by 70 points, the Swans by 50 or 60 points. Um, the Cats, I, I feel even though the margin wasn't as big, I, I feel it was the same. The Hawks in the finals. Um, and there was a couple of others that I, I can't bring to mind at the moment where we just did not have an answer for anything. We didn't have a plan B which didn't make sense because the week before and the week after we had those extra little bits of knowledge or plans or whatever it was um, to be able to stop those, those ruts. Yeah. I probably reckon you need to look at the season in two halves. Um, Pre Walsh tragedy, it was really probably only the Bulldogs game where we just fell in a heap, and it looked to me like that was a that was a, a combination of uh, match up and structure. But 
the other games that we got towed were really, as Nikki pointed out early, earlier, they they followed emotional wins and they were also um, away games, I think. All of them, weren't they, Nick? Yeah. Yep. And I just wonder whether, uh, uh, because we were playing a bit on emotion at that time, whether that played into it. I, I think structurally we looked better than we did under Sanderson. Um, so I don't know. I, the true test is going to be next season. Now, which of our debutants we've had this year? Because we had a number. Do you think his has, was probably the best? Riley Knight, Lever. I would say Cam Ellis Yeoman early, Lever in general. I'm really disappointed that Cam Ellis Yeoman got seemed to fall out of favour in the second half of the year. My, I have problems making a judgment on the, the second half of the year in terms of selection because of what happened in July and the statements that came out of the club and we know with Siggins going back to Tasmania that there were definitely – there were, of course, things going on and – one of the very strong statements that came out immediately from the club was that there's no pressure going to be on these boys to play. It's going to be entirely as to when they're ready. So was Cam Ellis Yolman not being being selected because he was on the outer? Was there anything else going on that maybe, okay, he's okay playing SNFL, but he doesn't feel quite right to be playing AFL? That might have been with him in the club, or it could be that he was out of favour. It's really hard to tell what's going on in terms of selection for this in the second half of the season just because of what happened and it was so unprecedented. And and I know from coaching myself that you've got to deal with players in a, um, or athletes in a, in a different way in different situations and you do have to be mindful of what's going on in their head in terms of their home lives as well. And so, yeah, for me, it's it's really hard to judge, but I was very impressed with him at the start of the year as well. Yeah, I've always been a bit of a rap on, on him anyway. Um, so let's hope. I mean, you're right. It, it's such a difficult year to judge because you just don't know what's going on behind the scenes and the club have been so strong on on a united front and a very um you know limited message to the media um you know there's guys like grig and 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 uh, so forth that didn't get a run where you'd expect they would but overall it was nice to see blokes like knight and and uh, atkins um and lever and charlie cameron come on like it was it was really good to see a bit of youth come through and i think that's why so many people were disappointed when vb and mckay were were brought back in late in the season because we were quite disappointed i think that that youth um didn't continue but they may have run out of puff yeah atkins was hopeless um, well yeah he was he was cooked yeah I, th- I think he he was well and truly cooked so even though everybody hates McKay and everything else it's like well who else is in terms of a winger type did we have to bring in I mean we had Greg and that waiting in the sidelines but they're not wing and they're not 
they don't have speed, they're actually quite slow. So in my opinion, you restructure. You do something different and you don't carry players in positions that aren't performing. Even if you don't have someone to replace them, you just replace them with someone else and try to do something different. Agree, 100%. They could have tried Dangerfield on the wing. They could have tried Smith on the wing. They could have put Charlie Cameron on the wing. There's plenty of plenty of guys on already in the field who Charlie did not want to go it. on the wing. I can tell you that in the Hawthorne game at one stage, um, because we'd had some changeovers um, during uh, for a centre break, and he's ended up on the wing, and he's just yelling at everybody else, trying to get somebody else to come to that position because he did not want to be there. Yeah, well, I, th- I agree with you, Dennis. I, there's no way McKay should have been selected. There's like to me, Greg should have been in the team. Maybe Lyon should have been in the team. Um, not McKay. Leave it, definitely. Leave it. The, the, yeah, the, there must have been some physical issue with Lever. Um, whether he was, um, whether he just flattened out, I don't know what he looked like the last couple of games in the sample. But um, I would have thought he would have come back in if he was if he was right for the Hawthorne game. It seemed to be a, a good matchup. Um, I could kind of understand him getting him getting dropped for the Bullies game. But certainly, I thought he'd be back in for the for the Hawthorne game. Yeah, it all depends on what he did on the track, um, what his GPS numbers were um, when they did. Because the the guys who who didn't play in the Bulldogs game, they still had to run a simulation, um, and they were all GPS monitored. So whether there was still an issue regarding um, similar numbers to what he was doing with the Geelong game. Yeah. That could be why. Yeah, but it, you know it's a what? bit hard to tell because we don't know that detail. At some point, you got to think someone's a better footballer than someone else. And McKay's GPS numbers would be great, I reckon. Um, don't mean he can play. Yeah, but you got to take it in the context of looking at it as compared to what he'd done the previous week against Geelong where he just looked completely and utterly lost. He was no orphan. No, he wasn't, but it was very unlike what we've seen from um, him before. Had burnt out probably. Could be. Look, there's a case for experience, but I don't think McKay, even though he's played games, I don't think he necessarily brings experience in. I could live with VB being in the team for that reason. Um, And I think VB was solid without, you know, really bringing a hell of a lot, but I think he held his own by and large. Um, David McKay, I've got no words. Honestly, I was expecting him to be subbed out earlier. Nah, in case of injury, I can understand that. I wanted him subbed out after the first quarter, but then I thought, (laughs) if someone gets injured? But we were already six, seven, eight goals behind. It's the last game in the season. You've got to yeah. pull the trigger. What What was interesting for me? I watched the um, AFL website, um, the Crows wash up the um, purple and um, loin chops. Uh, do I don't know if you guys have seen those ones, but um, when they got to who should be looking out for the chopping block. Uh, one of the main names they brought up was David McKay, regardless of the fact that he's still got two, three years left on his contract. I don't think he's up to the standard. So it's not just us that sees it. Interesting. Well, 
uh, any any decent follower of football would, has to come to the same conclusion. Like it just it just doesn't add anything. So what do we think about Jacobs once again getting a bit snubbed regarding ruck and selection in the All-Australian 40 squad, which incidentally they only went with one ruckman, even Nick Nat, who most people thought would be on the bench, wasn't. And Rusciuto's made a very pointed tweet that the structure of the team selected is pathetic and wouldn't actually play a game. Sorry, Dennis. All right. No, you go, Waffle. You just have to wonder what does Jacobs have? What sort of season does he have to have to get selected? The guy's doing everything possible to get selected, and he gets overlooked every time. Is it because he's from the Adelaide Crows, or I was going to say play for a Victorian team? I think um, if you have, sorry, obviously I'm the stats man. Uh, Goldstein was the outstanding ruck for the whole very season. much, very much so. Sandilands was not far off. Um, he had a pretty similar number of hitouts as um, Goldstein. Doesn't have the around the ground impact. Uh, Nadanui doesn't have the around the ground. Sorry, doesn't have the total hitouts. Um, but a lot of his hitouts go uh, straight to one of his men, or he's um, able to rove it himself and do something magical with it. Uh, Jacobs has a little bit of all of those. He had the third most hitouts for the year and was actually in the top seven or eight um, total number of hitouts for the f- f- in in history. Um, Goldstein and Sandilands had the most and second most uh, hitouts for a year in history this year. Um, Jacobs has a better around the ground uh, impact than Sandilands does, although Sandilands kicked a few goals, um, but it's not up to the standard of Nick Nat and uh, Goldstein around the ground. So I can see why um, Goldstein was selected. I think it would have been a toss up between Jacobs, Sandilands and Nick Nat for the second spot. Um, if they knew they were going to put just one Ruckman in, I don't see what the harm would have been in putting Jacobs in the in the 40. Um, but I, I can see why he wasn't selected this year. Yeah, I, I have no problems because Goldstein had an amazing year and I thought Nick Nack, some of his stuff, the, that other work, he's he has actually started to really live up to that um, amazing athletic potential that he has and putting a few things together. But I was quite disappointed that Jacobs didn't make the 40. Um, but wasn't he leading – didn't Jacobs lead the hit out to advantages or – That's what I was going to ask uh, if you had the stats he, for the hit outs to advantage, then I was – Well, if anyone had been reading my stats thread, they would know that um, in the last round – Jacobs fell just behind Nui in the hitouts to advantage ah. as a percentage of total hitouts. So Jacobs had the most in quantity, but Nui had a good 200 less hitouts, but more of his uh, on average went to um, his player. And uh, he also had Lysett and the other guy, Sinclair, um, as backups. Well, Jacobs was doing pretty much the whole lot on his own. 
I think the knock's always going to be on source to do more around the ground. Uh, certainly from my perspective, that's what I'd like to see. Um, stats notwithstanding, um, I don't think he impacts enough around the ground. He did improve on that this year. I was um, I agree. quite impressed with a lot of that work he was doing. I do like the fact that the other players have actually nicknamed him Tall Mid because he plays like a tall midfielder. For a guy who's that size, he's very well coordinated. Um, and he he's has a, a very link man. Yeah, he is. He's got a very lovely kick on him as well. Um, and I, I love the fact that we've actually got some really strong competitive beasts in the team in respect of you can see how annoyed – he was, even in the last quarter, we were absolutely being smashed by Hawthorne in that final. And he just slightly mistimed getting there um, to beat Hale, you know, for a mark or whatever. And he's still, you can see him, you know, thumping his, his fist into his hand. He's annoyed with himself that he didn't quite do it. So he, I like the fact that we've got some competitive beasts like that on the team. And we've got some of those in every um, section of the ground now as well. If Jacobs was doing it in the ruck, um, Rory, even though he might have gone missing in this last game, I think he is similar. Uh, DT is amazing at his preparation and just does not like to get a single thing wrong. Um, you could add Brown in there as well in that back Brown. line. Yep. And you probably chuck Charlie in there as well from the forward line's perspective in terms of work rate. He certainly does a hell of a lot of work defensively up forward. Well, him and Riley Knight. So it's quite good that a lot of these are fairly young guys. So as a final word on the Hawthorne game so we can put it behind us and forget it ever existed, um... What's our predictions for Premier this year, guys? It'd be interesting to see the the Hawthorne Fremantle game. That's going to be interesting <laughs> to see which Hawthorne turns up, what Fremantle can do to counter if the Hawthorne we saw on Friday night turns up. But I think West Coast is. West Coast is the one to beat for my mind. I agree. I think that they're in the best position. If Hawthorne wins against Fremantle, then they're coming back from Perth. If Fremantle beats Hawthorne, it will have been a very, very tough game. Um, West Coast hasn't left Perth in several weeks and North Melbourne are clearly the weakest of the four teams. So I think West Coast is going to have an easier run into the grand final and they're going to have a weaker opponent than themselves. What do you reckon, Waffle? Yeah, I think uh, Hawthorne probably win it, take it out again this year unless Frio brings in Crowley to rough up a few of the Hawks. No, they've already said he's not going to play. No, he's 200 done. I personally... I think the fact that West Coast haven't been out of Perth for a few weeks is actually detrimental to them. One of the things I noticed about Hawthorne was their ability to stretch us across the ground and get around our zone. 
quite comfortably by quick, effective switching. And I think West Coast might be a bit vulnerable on the wide MCG. I certainly think Hawthorne are going to beat Fremantle this week. Um, and I don't think the travel back is going to be as big an issue as some people may think. So my I'm, my bet is on a three-peat. Which I'd hate to see. All of us would, but uh, I see it. I don't see anyone stopping Hawthorne. I mean, they utterly dismantled us, and not that we're a benchmark, but I certainly don't see Hawthorne, uh, Fremantle being uh, putting enough scoreboard pressure on them to win. And I, I do believe that West Coast are going to struggle to contain them on the MCG like they've done over in the West. So what about the Brownlow? Has Fife, has Fife done enough? I'm sure the umpires will give him votes. Yeah, I can see Fife having enough. Um, but I think uh, Dangerfield's going to get a few more votes than the um, experts, so-called experts, are predicting. I think it's going to be pretty close. I'm actually just really looking interested in the Fremantle game against us as to how the umpires are going to vote for that game with that five Dangerfield matchup. Because Fremantle won, so does Fife get it? But I actually thought Dangerfield slightly had the better of him in that game, they, actually watching it live. Can they split the votes one and a half each? I think that would actually be fair. Um, so in terms of... Uh, um, how champion data saw it. Uh, Fife got more super coach points. Um, sorry, Dangerfield got more super coach points. Fife got more player rating points. And most on the night said that Fife was better because Fremantle won. You'd expect Fife to get the three just because Frio won. I mean, the umpires aren't that smart. <laughs> no. I, I mean, Fife gets 30 votes in the first half of the season, so, I mean, that wins most most counts. Yeah, it does win most years. be interesting to see also Goldstein. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm really interested to see what, what happens with Goldstein because he's had a standout year. But then, you know, Sandlin's has been dominant for years and really hasn't polled, you know, uh, excessively well. Hannabury's the other one I'm interested in. I think he might fly under the radar a bit and get a few votes. Yeah, yeah, especially, yeah. especially since the coaches saw him um, or recognised him as being the best of the year. Sydney players are always so hard to gauge for me anyway because I don't actually see much of them play. Um, but They don't yeah. play an attractive style of football, so you don't actually really want to watch a Sydney game. No, I'm not drawn to them, that's for sure. Um, in terms of Goldstein um, and the Sandilands um, comparison, Sandilands, um, he was most dominant in an era where Fremantle weren't overly good. Uh, Goldstein this year, in a team that won a lot of games, was a standout in most of those wins. 
And they are the ones that um, tend to almost guarantee you votes. So even if he yeah. only gets one or two votes each each week, then they add up. If he polls in, he could easily poll in 14 games. And if he gets an average of two votes, then he's got 28 votes already. I'd be disappointed if he didn't make top five, put it that way. I'd be very surprised if he won, obviously, but I think top five is probably a a decent decent result. I think that'd be fair. I call Goldstein the uh, Brontosaurus of AFL and Sandilands the uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. That's very insightful. That's a very interesting analogy. So let's move on to the couple of issues that we've got at hand. We've got uh, a coach and we've got Dangerfield. Do we have a coach? Well, what I'm saying, we've got a coach to find. Yes. And and we've got Mr. Dangerfield to lose. Or somebody who needs to think about something and make up his mind. So uh, is it just me that thinks that um, – the media has really, like the Victorian media, have really driven this agenda to get Dangerfield back to Victoria and that all along Patrick, whilst he might have had discussions and thoughts and all the rest of it, has really decided to let the decision wait until this time of the year. I think it's a, the media is trying to drive him back to Melbourne and... Who knows what he's thinking. He's certainly enjoying the uh, attention he's getting, that's for sure. He is very much, I think, as Rue said, he is a different cat. He does think differently than what you would expect uh, a player to react to certain things. He's. We know that he's very strong in his beliefs and he can be, from what we've seen this year, he can be quite stubborn, um, which sometimes isn't a bad thing. Not just this year, but um, oh, yeah, the word coming from Standerson, you try telling him that he's not playing. Which is why I think Walshy was such an inspired pick because he could tell Danger, you're not playing. <laughs> um, and there, I think you could see that there was a respect there between those two. <sighs> I find it difficult to believe it, it that hard. you could play with such commitment um, and such, um, you know, for all, for all his, I'm going to say, self-absorption off the field, when he goes on the field, he is selfless in the way that he plays. Um, and if you've made a decision not to be somewhere the following year, it does, I don't think it matters how committed you are, it takes 5% of an edge off your game. And I haven't seen that from Patrick at all. Um, and it, it just makes me wonder, together with some body language and a few messages and whatnot, you know, after after the season's end, perhaps he just really has, he might be leaning one way or the other, but perhaps he really hasn't sat down and thought, well, all right, I'm going to go this way or that way. Yeah, he's... I'm. I'm really in two minds about it. I mean, you can understand the pull of the family and with what happened this year that you would actually possibly want to be um, closer to your family. And we, and what I do understand that he's also had some tragedies 
um, in his life growing up and, and lost family members. So, and we all saw, um, I mean, that vision of after the game when they're in the circle, the West Coast game and the, the way he was crying and everything else, it, it, it did hit him quite hard and it hit a lot of, a lot of the players, of course. I'm, for me, I, I would be disappointed in him if he did leave. I could possibly understand that it's not just a football decision um, in terms of it's a life decision and there's things that he does have to weigh up. But why would you leave this team as well? And and like you just said, Phoenix, he's he has sacrificed himself at times in in his game and and not gone after his own personal glory because it's not for the the best of the team. I mean, I've actually seen him do that where he could have gone and got the ball, but somebody else has a better chance, and so he backs off. And. You know, it's a bit counterintuitive to say on the one hand he's a consummate professional, which he is in terms of his football, and on the other hand he would make a decision that seems to fly in the face of that. To me, moving interstate and playing for an interstate club would be neither here nor there for someone like Dangerfield because he is—he does treat it very much as a profession. Um and given the mateship that he obviously has, even even though he is a bit bit of an individual, he obviously does have mateship amongst the group. Um, I think someone posted during the week that, you know, that his teammates are part of his bridal party next year when he gets married and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, it just there's obviously a mateship there, and you wonder you wonder what the pull of Geelong is aside from you know the grow up factor for someone who who does treat football as a profession. I think for me, it's more his media opportunities. He will have a, a chance to be on those shows, like be have a regular gig on AFL three hundred and sixty, to be on the footy show a lot more because from what we've seen of danger he's very interested in going into the media post career so i can see that advantage in that um that pool is there as well yeah see and if that is if that is the case nikki and i and i don't doubt that that might be a factor then i think it's about time our club recognizes that that is an issue for our star players and facilitates more opportunities for them to appear in the media. And if that means that they need to travel more to Melbourne or do more live hookups or we need to utilise a local studio or or something, we need to facilitate our star players maximising their off-field and post-career opportunities. Otherwise, this shit's going to keep happening. There's not a lot of um, – we don't have a lot of people like Danger, though, who are actively seeking out spots in the media. No, that's true, but it needs to be made available to them when they do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at someone like Bernie. I mean, Bernie has a, a great presence in the media now and that's only been enhanced since he's been over in Melbourne. and. What you know, the circumstances of Bernie's exit aside, uh, that could have been. It's not only about the players' opportunity; it's also about exposure of our club on a national scale. 
you know, and I think that can't be underestimated by our club. And I think we really need to circumvent issues like media exposure that could play a part or be factors in people not wanting to, A, come to Adelaide or B, stay in Adelaide. And that goes for coaches as well. Yeah, it is kind of interesting that Adelaide's been getting quite um, strong results in terms of like livable city and this lifestyle and everything else, but all we continually hear is, no, nobody wants to come to Adelaide because it's horrible. Yeah, but 22-year-olds aren't judging those awards, Nikki. No, they're not. But they're, they're not quite understanding the things that are on offer here. But I think that's a problem of our state is that we've got quite a number of good things. They're all you have to be local and you have to have that little bit of knowledge to know about them. Um, I think we're, we're a little bit more in terms of the we don't really spruik ourselves as much as what others could do or do do. See, I disagree with that. I think we are guilty of telling people what they should like about our city um, and it's not up to us to tell people what they should like. It's up to people to tell us what they do like and if if we're not getting enough of that positive um, vibe from people who come and work in this state, including professional footballers, then things need to change. It's not up to us to say, well, shit, go and visit Kangaroo Island, Brossa Valley and Flinders Ranges. If that's not appealing to people, then we need to change something as a state. It's not those areas I was talking about. There, there are things like the whole lot of the festivals and all those other stuff that go on that we tend to go, oh, yeah, that's happening, not, re- not actually understanding how good these things are that we've got all those festivals and that are going on. We just continually hear that, you know, Sydney's this great thing and yet the Adelaide Festival actually has a better reputation internationally than what the Sydney Festival Arts Festival does. So there's there's things like that that go on that we that we don't really understand. As I'm saying, we we don't really understand how good we do have it, but that's not for everybody. But let, let let's be honest. That's a month and a half of the year, and then we go back to sleep. People, uh, no, we've got Asia. There's a cabaret festival. There's an international guitar festival. There's all these things actually going on during the year. People. But it happens over the whole year. Yeah, people need to get in their car and drive. There's lots of things to see and do. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm. Look, I'm. A, I'm a great. Um, I, I've lived here all my life, and I love Advocate. the place. Yeah. Advocate. Thank you, Danos. But I'm looking at it from the perspective of a 22-year-old footballer who has to do something with his downtime when he's not training, or has to do something in his off-season when he's not training. And looking, trying to look at it from that perspective rather than from someone who's lived here all my life and I know what what's on and when things are on and where where to go to find a good time. And it's it's not those people that it's not me that we're trying to cater for here in terms of this particular discussion. It's a young lad from interstate that's a bit homesick, that's away from all his friends, trying to look for something to distract the distract from his yeah. daily routine of training and playing football. The the problem I think there is that their downtime there's the all the big education programs. So most of the time their evenings are now structured around them going to do university. Um and a lot of our players are doing that because there there's a real push for the 
that education. So whilst they get in early in the morning, they go to they do their training. They've got meetings. So possibly it's like afternoon they get to go home, but then evening they've got to do all the evening classes. It's it could possibly be that what needs to be looked at is the balance of when we make people train um, and things like that. Work life balance. Yeah. And it was very interesting that one of the things that was talked about that apparently what Fagan and Walsh had discussed um, in the in the mid-season review was making it compulsory for Walshie to spend at least a day away from the club and doing something else and the same for the other coaches and so a bit more delegation going on. So is that also whilst players have their rostered day off that they've got to have as well, is it something else that the, the club needs to be looking a, a little bit closer at in terms of a balance there too? Maybe the club need to get more involved in actually facilitating, it sounds a bit contrived, but facilitating activities or a range of options that these guys can do. Look, I, there's a, there's other things at play too here. You go to Melbourne, you know, you're a footballer. There's 20 different media outlets that that yeah. are at play. We've got five AA and the and the advertiser and a bit of Triple M. I mean, you know, it's a snore fest. And you can see that's why JJ um, does quite a bit of work with SEN. Um, he is a f- fairly regular on there. And they love him. Yeah, the, and I think that's what I mean in terms of trying to facilitate a bigger presence in the media for our for our players that want to get involved, um, so they don't feel so disconnected. We keep hearing this: Melbourne, Melbourne is the centre of the AFL universe, and to a large degree, that's the case. But you don't hear people from WA complaining about that. Because they have a they have a, a far more dynamic um, media over there. It's not just a one radio station and one newspaper that just spruiks the same crap all the time. It is a, a very in, interesting thing that well, it will be very interesting to see how this plays out. But the, and the other thing is our head coach options. Do we actually know who they are? Well, according to the media, Kingsley's been interviewed. Um, Someone said on the board that apparently Burns been interviewed. Yep, Scott Burns, John Blakey, um, and Don Pike's the mystery man. We don't know whether he's been approached or not. So well, this, a bit like what happened last time. The statement uh, on the Crows website today about Wusher, um said that we'll be ready to announce our new coach early next month, which just happens to coincide with um, the grand final being over and trade period starting. Which kind so of implies it? that we're fairly, I think, sure in who we're after. And that we've been able to talk to this person, um, whether or not they're involved in finals or not. 
which Although is you'd think you'd think that if we had someone who is not involved in finals anymore, we'd be able to announce who it is. Yeah. Uh, which is then interesting because there's been like given that we appear to have interviewed Kingsley, Blakey, Scotty Burns, etc., there's been no word of us interviewing anyone from Fremantle or West Coast, for example. So if it was, for example, Don Pike, are we taking him sight unseen? Didn't we actually go into – weren't our interviews held in Melbourne last time? I can't remember. I've got no idea. I think we actually held a round of interviews in Melbourne, which is why nobody knew what was going on because basically our coaching selection committee left this state. Everybody's keeping an eye on the club to see who's coming in or out and it didn't happen there, so therefore the media doesn't know. So that makes me wonder, have we actually been over if we're interested in somebody from Fremantle or West Coast that we've gone over there and we have actually interviewed? But it's a stage of what we did last time. Nobody knows what we've done. And perhaps we actually asked permission of the teams and so they haven't kicked up a fuss. That stuff, yep. that stuff tends to get out, though. I mean, I know we've been watertight, but there's two, there's other teams at play here. Um and you would imagine that, um, you know, that sort of information would leak through. I mean, I don't. We don't even have a coaching selection panel that I'm aware of. Yes, we do. Do we? Yep. Who's that? Uh, Alan Stewart, Rue, Pays, Fagan, Fagan, and I think that's it. I think they were looking to have somebody external as well, um, but I haven't heard. If that happened or not, I think I think uh, I read somewhere that uh, they didn't expand it because they've been through the process so recently. Yeah, I think initially they were going to do exactly the same thing, and Fagan wasn't going to be on board. Um, but then Fagan came in, so that's that's the last I'd heard. But that that was pretty much the same panel that selected Walshie. From my perspective, I think there's a big need to move on from Phil Walsh. I mean, I don't think, and I think this is why, irrespective of his abilities, I don't think Scott Camparelli was ever going to be considered because I think whilst our club's always going to maintain some of the Phil Walsh mantras in terms of team first and and standards, etc., I think it would be detrimental to continue playing for his legacy and I think it would be very unfair to, to expect a new coach to come in and just continue on with someone else's um, uh, teachings and structures and whatnot. So the person that comes in needs to be strong enough to be able to take the group out of that headspace without disrespecting what Phil did and, and the esteem that the players hold him in and be able to take them in the direction that he wants them to go. And, and I think that makes it a very limited um, pool of candidates. Yeah, needs to start a new chapter, needs to be their own person to impart their game plan onto the players, all that sort of gear. We've got to start afresh. And that, that's what I said on the board in that the person that's coming in, we need a new voice. Um, we need that little break, um, which is good, which is what the players are going to get for this little bit and when 
they come back to pre-season training. It's, yep, still stick with the, the team first elite standards because they should be um, non-negotiables. But the new person coming in has to, I agree, Phoenix, have that strong but their own voice. This is why I like Don Pike as a, as a selection because him and Phil work together. So I think Don Pike could empathise very much with the buy-in that the players had for Phil's philosophies. But I, but Don Pike, as well as being a, a, a long-term coach, is also a very prominent businessman, a very strong person, um, and I think would garner respect in a similar manner that Phil did, and I think would have the best opportunity to engage the players in his own slant on the, you know, tactical issues and game plan and whatnot. Someone like a Scotty Burns, I just can't see him having the ability to engage the players enough. Yeah, that's I've everything I've kind of heard. Pike's the one that has intrigued me the most. Well, plus there's, I mean, I would imagine that Rue's got a fair connection with him from playing days and like from when Pikey was um, Craig's assistant. Um, Rue would have been in his prime then and Pikey would have been very much working closely with with Rusciuto at that point. Um, Yeah, uh, and I think Worsfold might have had some input as well in terms of, you know, who do you reckon? What's your feel, Dennis? I honestly don't know enough about um, other teams' assistant coaches to have an opinion on who we should have. I think uh, we made a really good decision last time. Um, I trust the guys making the decision again this time are going to pick the best person that they can find for the job doesn't mean it's going to work. It doesn't mean they're going to be the right person in the in the long run uh, as long as they pick who they think is the right person at the time. I think it's possibly a more important decision than when we replace Sanderson because it could either go really well or it could all go to shit really quickly. It's yeah, such it's, a unique set of circumstances. It's a hell of a test. Yeah, it's you know, um, you know, it's it's that old you know who wants to be who wants to be the next person after after such a strong leader who you know left under such tragic circumstances. You're almost on a hiding to nothing. Um, so and that's what I what I what I mean when I say the guy's going to have to be in, incredibly strong and to he's going to have to gain respect very quickly. I was just trying to to look up in terms of Pike. He coached at Claremont. They had a decent win-loss record, but I thought they actually played finals as well, but I can't find the information on it. So for me, he's actually been a head coach as well, which is in an SANFL side. No, I'm sorry, in a waffle side. Um, But he's also, he's been a director at the Eagles and, 
as you said, Phoenix, there's this real interesting mix going on with him. But I wonder whether is it, he's like the Bassett of last time because a lot of us were quite strong on, on Bassett. The more I hear about Bassett, the less I want him as coach of our team. I've never been a fan. I've had some dealings with Bass before, and he's he's a strange fella. Don't think he listens to others very well. No, he's a hothead. Yeah, he gets fired up pretty quickly. Very similar to Rennie. Rennie was very opinionated and stuck in his own ways, and that's why he never succeeded really in, in assistant roles. Um, Bass is much the same. I mean, he, I think he got given the given the keys at Nord, and I think he did very well, but the AFL is a much more collaborative environment. Yeah. I think because I think Pikey initially left Adelaide for business reasons, didn't he, Nicky? Yes, he did. And then and then he came back into the football world a couple of, a couple of years later, if I remember he right. He came back on as a director at West Coast. Um, hang on, no, when was he a director? I think he went to to Claremont. Um, he he did some coaching at Claremont, um, director at West Coast, and then moved into coaching the AFL system. Yeah. So, but anyway. I also like him because he played for my football club, which is Bill Collin. He's well, a Canberra boy. Well, you know, everyone's got their negatives. Hey, we're the Mighty Fighting Pies. So anyway, it's going to be interesting to see how that washes out and um, obviously we're going to have a couple of casts, uh, you know, trade and draft time, so I'm sure we'll have a discussion um, again as that progresses. Uh, any final thoughts on the Dangerfield situation? I think we need to get as much as we can out of him um, in terms of trade value. That's if he leaves. I'm fairly firmly in the leaving stage now. I hate it, but I think I am. It kind of seems to be that way, but until it's actually said, it's still only a possibility. I, I What interests me, I mean, obviously I'm invested in whether he stays or goes, but in the end he's going to do what he's going to do and we're just going to have to deal with it. And I'm with you, Danos. We just need to work it as best we can. But I think there's bigger ramifications in terms of how free agency works, particularly if we match. There's going to be some pretty big knock-on effects in terms of, um, you know, the possibility of Geelong getting a free hit uh, on a potential Brownlow medalist, best and fairest, certainly one of the top five players in the class. Exactly. Uh, so bloody annoying that we're being told not to match. Who are, who are these people telling us not to match? Who are they? No, they're not not important. People, people who actually don't understand how free agency works. The only the one thing I will say though is if he does go into whichever team he goes to, he's not to wear the number thirty two. Isn't his number nineteen? Yeah, he can he can go back to nineteen or whatever he played um, when he played for the Geelong Falcons. 
The interesting thing for me will be this issue of compensation because I've always been a believer that the compensation should actually be um, the indicative pick for the receiving club because at the moment free agency works very much like father-son in terms or how father-son used to in terms of it's just sheer luck. You know, a, a good player decides he wants to go to a club and they get a they get a free, you know, it's like winning the lottery. It's a windfall. Whereas I think, you know, if the, if the player is deemed quality, uh, you know, pick one to five, then that's the pick that should be given up by the – because at the moment, the way it sits, Geelong benefit by getting a player, potentially not losing a pick, so they also keep their first round pick. Um at the expense of a team in a similar part of the ladder, um, you know that that doesn't gain anything and loses a loses a champion player is very inequitable. And the people who uh, try and compare our free agency system to how it works around the world, none of the other competitions around the world have the same um, belief structures in terms of equalisation. Um, AFL is unique in so many different ways and we want it to be so that all supporters across the whole country can enjoy success at different times. And this is this this whole thing just flies completely in the face of it. And if they want to have the free agency, then they need to keep the compensation in, but they may, need to make the compensation fairer. Yeah, I, it's yeah. 100% accurate, Danos. Like... Uh, we we have so many equalisation structures in place and yet free agency is obviously um, there to avoid, you know, multiple legal challenges to the draft and whatnot. But it it if if there's such a negativity towards Adelaide matching on Dangerfield, then it just makes you wonder what the hell the point is of restricted free agency. Why not just have free agency? after eight years or whatever it is. What, why have a situation where there's where the previous year it's, it's restricted free agency? I mean, what's the point? Yeah, it seems to be some sort of stopgap that the AFL's thrown in on a, almost on a whim to try and placate the clubs who were kicking up a bus about the fact they were going to lose players for nothing. And they, they tried to sprout this... Um, hope that it would be players leaving or good players leaving top clubs and going to bottom clubs but it's it's not happened like that at all and it won't happen I mean why would Dangerfield say I want to leave a club on the rise and go to Melbourne it's just never going to happen yeah it's not going to happen the theory was that they were going to get paid exorbitant amounts of money so someone leaving like a, a fifth or sixth string midfielder at Hawthorne could leave and get as much as what the top plate Hawthorne players were getting at another club and would be just about the number one midfielder. And see, that's let's, let's have a look at Bernie, for example. If Bernie had left under free agency conditions rather than being traded, his uh, currency 
wouldn't have been that much higher than than what he's currently getting. I wouldn't have thought. So they, so that blows the premise out of the water, doesn't it? I mean, Bernie wouldn't have all of a sudden become an eight hundred thousand a year midfielder, even though he's won the best and fairest now and all the rest of it. He's still worth what he's worth based on his ability. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I've got no answer for that. Well, apart from the fact that what the AFL has tried to condition us with of how free agency was going to turn out, none of it was correct. I don't think the AFL were quite pleased with what happened as well. Well, they were backed into a corner because the AFLPA were basically saying, well, we've got enough clout now that we're going to challenge the draft unless you give us some some um, ability for players to move to the club of choice. And it's a, it's a, it's a case of the cake, having the cake and eating it too in terms of the players are concerned. I think that the actual period for free agency is too short. You're looking at a guy like Dangerfield who's 25 years old. So why would a club nurture a player for eight years Bring them to their prime, where they're at the playing their yeah. peak, and then wave them goodbye, and 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 even with the compensation, have to start all over again with another kid. Why? Why would you do that? I think the age, the years needs to be increased. It needs to be when they're later on in their their years, so that the clubs that did draft him actually keep them for the bulk of their their peak years, like a ten year service. Yeah. Well, it's either that or it needs to be shorter. Because I think what's going to happen as this plays out, and it only occurred to me this afternoon, so I haven't really thought it through, but I, I can see a situation where we, we pick up a uh, the next Dangerfield, for example, and after his first contract, he's showing really, you know, real promise, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to lock him into a five-year, ten-year contract. Because that's the only way clubs are going to get power back because we all know that a, a club can move a player on even if he's under contract. But if a player's under contract, he's stuck at the club. So if the clubs want to get power back, they're going to start making these ridiculous contract lengths um, just to hang on to their players. I can see that happening. And the player managers and the players are going to fight against that. It's, um, unfortunately, I think the players have too much power. Yeah, well, they do. Player managers aren't going to fight against it because they've got their ten percent locked in. It's the play. This is a player-driven thing because the players don't like the draft. No. So, but from the club's perspective, the clubs are being asked to invest a lot of money. Given given you know draft age is eighteen, we we we're taking kids onto a, onto a limited list, um, and we're developing them. And then waving them goodbye. No way. We our next contract with with Lever should be eight years. I can see the the merit in doing that as well, and that's yeah. sad because it's an indictment on where we've uh, got to. Yeah, exactly right. It's completely counterproductive, and it and it all fall in a heap because you'll have clubs paying part contracts for other players, and yada yada yada. It'll be an absolute mess. But as a list manager, if I want to shore up my list and and try to avoid losing champion players, I'm going to lock them down. 
yeah, we're going to have to start having um, calls for like marquee players and stuff where you can pay like one or two players ridiculous amounts of money outside of the salary cap or something. End up with the buddy issue. Uh, well, of that if they lot, had of, some sort of marquee system in place where, where they could pay him as much as they wanted and only a certain portion of it was included or none of it, then it wouldn't matter how long they'd sign him up for or how much money they put him on. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, how complex do we want to make it? We're, we're, a, we're a one country sport with 700 odd players. How, how difficult do we want to make this system? It's, it shouldn't be this hard. And I think the AFLPA needs to be pulled back into line, quite frankly, because they need to see the bigger picture as we're describing and see how counterproductive it's going to be for a large portion of their membership. At the moment, they're just catering to the top 10%. It is. It is only it's benefiting, as you said, those at the top and not those who are probably only going to play a handful of games ever in their career. Well, you look at a guy like Kyle Cheney, for example. He's never going to reach free agency status because he's been traded three times. The, the blokes with the long service are the blokes that have currency, not, not the battlers that want to move to another club. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're not going to see David McKay bloody you know, put his hand up for free agency. He's, he's quite comfortable, thanks very much. So I don't know. I think it's got a lot. Do you want to end it on that joke? Go on. That one there. (laughs) McKay. I'm not going to edit it. No, end it. Oh, end it. No. I don't know. I I just think it's got a lot to play out, and it'll be very interesting if danger does go. Um, I I think people are are, um, a little bit, um, optimistic about what we're going to get out of it. I think we'll end up with a compensation pick, to be honest. I hope that's not the case. I'll no, I, I think they'll they'll be matching. They might match, but in the end, we're only going to get one first round pick. Yeah, we're still going to get screwed regardless. Yeah, but the compensation pick, which will be after as, or Geelong's first round pick, which is above as. Yeah, it's four or five places. Look, I would much, I would actually much rather see us match Geelong spit the dummy and us get nothing by putting Patrick in the draft, just to Ooh. make a statement. Yes, I, I know it's, I know, it, I know it flies in the face of good list management and all the rest of it, but Jesus Christ, I mean. <laughs> You know, we if we're going to be held over a barrel, we may as well go down kicking and screaming. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Justin Reid handles this. Well, that's the uh, that's the unknown that we've got coming into this period. We don't know what's going to happen um, in terms of Justin Reid, uh, what sort of control he's going to have, what impact he's going to have on different players and contracts and that sort of stuff. Um, I'm, d- despite the fact that Danger's, um, that I think Danger's leaving, 
uh, trade period is always one of the most exciting times of the year for me because we haven't had uh, success for a very long time. So um, the thought of what we could possibly get is always very exciting. Um, Hopefully we can, regardless of what happens with danger, we can get something or some blokes in who are going to make a big difference to our side moving forward. I think we've got a good core in our team and I hope that Reid's um, with his eye on that, that nice board we saw up earlier in the year where he's tracking almost every single player in the AFL, that they're going to get us some things that are going to complement us and help us take those next steps up the ladder even more than what we did this year. Trade period is the only reason I've got a Twitter account. Because <laughs> it's the easiest way to follow all the crap that goes on. You True. Are. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, we best not wind it up. We could waffle on for ages, waffle, but um, we better not. Um, we will be back um, in the coming weeks for a discussion around um, the trade, and I'm sure we'll we'll have a, a resolved um, coaching situation and perhaps a resolved Dangerfield situation by then. So we'll have a fair bit to talk about. Um, but for now, um, thanks to everyone for listening to us during the season. Um, we've had some ups and downs, uh, not only with the club, but also with the Crowcast. But for our first year, I've had a lot of fun and I'm sure my cohorts here on the board have had a bit of fun as well. And we'll certainly be returning in some shape or form next season. So thanks very much, Danos, Nikki and Waffle for your participation and thank you Phoenix for all your hard work behind the scenes as well yes thank you Phoenix and also to not only our um, inaugural members uh, for the Crowcast um, Peter Specious and um, Red Mist but also to everyone who's joined us throughout the year on Board Talk and um, um, Luke Brown and some of the opposition supporters who have joined us as well Absolutely. I think it's uh, it's been a lot of fun for all of us and it's been certainly interesting and uh, hopefully uh, we can continue and make it even better next year. So, But we'll see you in a couple of weeks for Trade Talk. Indeed. The silly season. And just remember, Kylie over Danny. <laughs> oh, yeah. What was Surely Kylie won that. Kylie won that. Sorry, Easily. big fella. All right. Good night, guys. Good See night. Ya. See ya. You've been listening to Crowcast, brought to you by Kazmar Event Technologies for your live production and studio recording needs. See you at the footy. Oh,